Ladies and gentlemen, my name is Ben and this is the Smoking Hot Confessions Barbecue Video Podcast. Hey family, I hope you're well wherever you are and you got that thin blue smoke rolling. Today, we're doing things very, very differently. You can see that we're filming this through Zoom today. It's our first go doing it. I'm probably going to need a proper green screen because my little uh, digital background is a little bit funky. I'm going to try and not move my hands around because it's going to upset it a bit. Uh, And we are doing uh, a topic today which is quite a bit different. So this is episode 105 of the Smoking Hot Confessions uh, podcast. And every interview of the podcast so far has been about smoked meats, either competitions or businesses around barbecue. And this week we're going for something just a little bit different. So I'm having a talk to Jim Fuller, the founder of Fable. Um, This is a company that makes a fungus-based meat substitute. So a meat substitute made of mushroom, then the claim is that it will satisfy satisfy any good meat loving Texan. So that is a big claim to make and being a barbecue podcast, I my curiosity was piqued and I just had to know more about it. So as I said, today's guest is Jim Fuller, the founder of Fable, a mushroom based meat substitute that claims to be so good that meat lovers won't miss the meat in their meals. So in today's episode, we're going to get into Jim's background and work out how that relates to, uh, to barbecue. We're going to find out why he decided to go vegan. And before you panic, we're going to find out why he decided to come back. And we're going to get into the development of Fable and the impact of Fable and sorry, and the impact that Fable can have on people's health and the environment. And then finally, we're going to close out the episode with a a, a Fable recipe from Jim that, uh, that everyone should, uh, should try. So without further ado, let's get stuck into it. This is the internationally awarded Smoking Hot Confessions Barbecue Podcast with your host, Ben Arnott. How long has it been since your last confession? Jim, thank you for taking the time out of your busy schedule to join us and welcome to the confessional. Thanks a lot, Ben. It's great to be here. So let's, uh, let's kick things off, mate. Fill us in on, um, on, on your background. I can hear that you've got a bit of an American accent there. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm guessing Texas. Yeah, that's right. So, um, born and raised in Texas, uh, grew up with that slow cooked meat, that barbecue in to me, that was just around me all the time. I didn't, I didn't realize how special that actually was. It just, that's what I grew up with. Um, but, uh, step it right back to getting started. Uh, I'm, I'm Jim Fuller, uh, not just a Texan. I was a fine dining chef for 10 years. And at the same time, I was doing that. I was going to university to become a chemical engineer. So a very sort of scientific sort of approach to cooking and and cooking like uh, in, in classical methods all the way through to new infusion stuff. Um, it drew inspiration from all over the place. Uh, and putting myself through full-time university at the time, being that science background, science stuff, um, I was always drawn to the more, I guess you might say like weird or interesting or unique sort of, um, produce and combinations of, uh, all the stuff that had multiple variety of uses. And, and one of the things that kept drawing me in as a chef was, was mushrooms because the, the whole world of mushrooms was really cool with the wilds and the medicinals and the stuff that you get all year long. And 
Yeah. <laughs> Medicinals, yeah, for sure. Um, the stuff that you get all year long from, from farms, but then there's the stuff that you can only get at certain times a year out of the forest, you know, the forage stuff and, and the forage stuff, um, had all kinds of history and tales and, and value to it. Like some of the stuff was coming in at $300 a pound. And, and I say a pound because that's, you know, back in the States. So pounds a little less than half a kilo, but you know, up to that. $300 a pound. Yeah. Some of those things were wow. just so highly prized and ephemeral, which means they only come out at the right time with the rain and the exact right conditions and only from certain spots in the, in the U S or in Canada or wherever they were imported from, you know, so you had to know what you were looking for. You had to be first in line. And if not first in line, you're going to get the maggot riddle sort of juicy stuff at the bottom that still cost you $298 a kilo, you know? Yeah. 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 So, um, got really interested in interesting and unique ingredients while being a fine dining chef in San Antonio, Texas. Uh, we followed my wife's job. So my wife is an Australian and, and that's why I'm currently living in Australia. So she moved over there, finished her degree and we were planning on moving back to Australia. It took a while to get the visa. So we followed her job out to California and that was a kind of time in my, in my schooling career that, I had taken all the the stuff that you can take to become a chemical engineer, but not enough to, to graduate in the States because over there you needed to take art and history and all those other breadth courses to finish a degree. But I didn't want to do that because I was transferring to Australia. I knew I was transferring to Australia and Australia didn't care about any of that other stuff. Like, you know, at the time. <laughs> now, now the breadth courses are a part of it. But at the time, if you're doing science, it's science and math. Those are the only things you can bring with you. Yeah, so yeah. that's what I did. I'm sorry. Oh, I, I was just saying, yeah, yeah. I oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So that's what I did. I, I only did the, um, the science and math and I took more than I needed to take in, in, in order to become a chemical engineer, but not get a degree, but in order to stay in school and bring more credits over, I jumped into biologies as well. So I got a little bit of exposure to like the biological world rather than just the chemical world. And uh, that was like in the last more, more formative uh, part, portion of my education. And, and one of the, the lecturers said on the topic of fungi, which was this big in, in you know, in the, in the course, <laughs> but we talked about fungi for a day or two. And one of the things he said stuck with me, and I wasn't even really thinking about it at the time, but he said, a mycologist is a, a mushroom scientist. There are not enough mycologists in the world. That's, that's just a line that sort of stuck with me. I don't know why, but then when we moved out to California and for my wife's work, she's a cancer researcher. So we went to like the Buck Institute in uh, North Bay area, San Francisco in Marin County, which is like one of the most expensive places you can live in the state. Um, I started looking for a job in the science field or something. And I didn't want to be a chef anymore because we're, you know, we're having a young family. It just had a, a daughter and a son on the way didn't want to be a chef anymore because those hours didn't work for a young family. Um, I didn't want to take any more school because I took more than I could take to bring with me to Australia. And I knew that we were coming to Australia in a year, two years, you know, just waiting on that visa. So I actually, I, there's a thing in the States called Craigslist, which is sort of like uh, uh, Gray's auctions or Gray's online here. I think that's what it's called. Or, or Gumtree um, maybe. Yeah, yeah, like that. But it sort of like covers everything. You can get like your want ads and, you know, free stuff and whatever. That's just where people go put their stuff on and you can find it. 
Um, so it's the equivalent of a whole bunch of different things rolled into one. And on there, there was a um, job offer for a sun supervisor at a mushroom farm. But that's all it said. There was no description. I found out like a year later, whenever they were describing, whenever I needed to hire somebody while I was working there, that they never put much more than just the title in their, um, in their job descriptions, just because they get people from all over the place, like looking for drugs. Oh, <laughs> like, there's the shrooms, man. I can do all those things you said, so, you know, a job offer from a mushroom farm and they just come out of the woodwork. So that's, that's why, but I mean, just that, that little stinger with no description was enough to intrigue me. And, um, I went and checked them out. They were in, uh, Sebastopol, California, which was about 45 minutes north of Marin, but it was so much cheaper and, and like a, a nicer place, very like uh, rural, lots of apple orchards all around, lovely place. And with the job offer came a house on the mushroom farm there, like with a winery on one side, an apple orchard on the other, living on a mushroom farm in, in, in what I would call like God's green earth, because it was just like rolling hills and Sounds, sounds awful. Sounds absolutely terrible. Oh, oh, tragic, (laughs) tragic. And, and part of the job was the house. So that was part of my payment. Like, and I got to tend to gardens that were acres and stuff like that. It was, it was, it was wonderful. Um, so I did that for a couple of years and that brought me into, to fungi that brought me to like full circle of the scientist, the background and cooking. And now I could go out in North Bay area, San Francisco is where it rains a lot. And you can go out into the forest and find all of these really expensive mushrooms. Those $300 a kilo ones or or $300 pound ones. I found 17 kilos of them in one trip one day. Wow. Uh, And I mean, it's like, yeah, I know. And, and there are so many interesting ones and so many cool things about each different one. This particular one is prized for its delicious spice aroma. It smells like cinnamon when you smell it, but it's like, sort of really umami. The Japanese go crazy for it. And they're the ones who drove it up. It's called the uh, uh, Matsutake. Uh, so it's just one of those that when you harvest one of them, you know that it's going to be like, oh, you know, this is a prize. <laughs> so I've got so many of those prizes from, from uh, California. So that's where I kind of fell in love with all of it. Had the science, had the cooking, was working in the farming and realized that mushroom growing, it, the farming aspect of it is it's not just farming. It's like, you need to be a scientist. You need to be a farmer. You need to have the, the knowledge of, of what you're trying to create. And you need to not only do it like with an agricultural sense, you need to be kind of artistic. You're, you're, you're drawing upon like knowledge from backdoor or not back, backyard farming, you know, like in, in setting that up in a big way because no one else is doing this kind of farming. It's not like plowing the acres. You're doing it indoors. You're replicating like the outdoors, but you're doing it indoors all year long. It's protected cropping, essentially. Um, but you know, you need to fool the mushrooms into thinking it's, it's summer at a, at a certain time. And then you need to fool them into thinking it's autumn or fall at another time. And then, and you just get them like clockwork. And I just, I fell in love with this whole thing. This farm in, in, the, in the, the North Bay area in Sebastopol was called uh, gourmet mushrooms. And they used a Japanese bottle cultivation system. So, um, it, it's not, it wasn't very common at the time. It is really common now. But like, a, you know, any mushroom farmer might be growing like in big beds in, in, a, in a warehouse sort of thing. But these were like in little one liter bottles and these one liter bottles were in trays and they were fed through machines that filled them up. 
They were fed through machines that sterilize them. They were fed through machines that put little seed in them. And then they just stacked up in warehouses and trade. It just looked very like precise, you know, Japanese style. Yeah, yeah. Very precise. And then you walk into the rooms, like there were 10 fruiting rooms. And, you know, there's always like a couple down that have been picked the week before. There's always a couple picking this week and there's always a couple loading up for the next week, that sort of thing. So it was just like clockwork. You could walk in and know one and two, they're going to be carpets of mushrooms in there. You'd be picking straight for four hours. And the mushrooms were just so beautiful and all the same and all that kind of stuff. So, I mean, lots of aspects of that, that a scientific mind loves to drive into produce and like a chef likes to see like the plump fat bodies and the little formed heads and all that kind of stuff. Like, and you're doing this, it's, it's chef, it's art, it's farming, it's science, it's everything. And so I fell in love. And not only with doing it on the farm, going out after working on the farm and then going out and spending my hobby out in the woods with the filtered light, the dappled, the dappled filtered light and the smell of the mycelium as you're traipsing through the woods, all that stuff. It's just like that hits you on this primitive level of hunter gatherer. Like, you know, as much as I'm a meat eating Texan, I am a tree hugging hippie. <laughs> and just falling in love with being in that. And I mean, it hits you on that same primal level of when you slow roast meat and you smell it and you're just like viscerally like, yes, I'm ready for this. Same, same sort of, it's the same chords that you're striking when you're walking around in the woods, looking for food, foraging, knowing a name that you're applying to this dinner plate sized, beautiful smelling thing that you could take back, provide for your family and say, that is, you know, scientific binomials whipping out left and right. That's a lentinula dotis or, you know, something like that. So um, it's mushroom, mushroom life, fungi, all that stuff. It just strikes me right down to the science, art, chef, everything core. So, yeah, yeah, that's sort of, that's where I sort of fell in love with mushrooms. Then we got the opportunity finally with my visa to come to Australia. That was 12 years ago. So it came to, came to Australia 12 years ago, fully in love with mushrooms, decided to start growing them myself and providing them to the wholesale market and uh, did that. So I started from my father-in-law's backyard. I put up a 10 square meter tin shed and was harvesting at about 30, uh, 30 kilos a, a week. Wow. Um, That's a lot of mushrooms. Of What's that? I said, that's a lot of mushrooms, 30 kilos yeah, yeah, a week. Yeah, it is for, for a really small operation. And I was selling 30 kilos a week and I was doing that part-time while I finished a, a now agricultural science degree at the University of Melbourne. So I, I changed tracks. So chemical engineer was it. And I was a chemical engineer. That's what I was going to be. But then I just went out and fell in love with mushrooms and came here and decided to start growing them, uh, selling them, eating them and all that. So changed tracks, changed to an agricultural science degree. And I finished that in 2009, University of Melbourne. Got straight into growing mushrooms big. So as soon as I graduated, I said, I'm either going to uh, do a PhD track, go out into the forest or woods here in Australia in the bush and discover a cure for cancer, you know, and do that. Or I'm going to go into mushroom production and do what I saw in the States, Japanese bottle, you know, light clockwork, 10 tons a week, that's going to happen. Bang. So I, I ended up making the decision whenever I uh, got a call from a, a fruiter, uh, a fruit grower up in Shepparton. So that's in Victoria, real like apples and pears. And he wanted to convert some fruiting rooms into mushroom growing rooms. And they were perfect environments. So I was going to, I was going to step up from 30 kilos a week 
And my original plan was to go to 300 kilos a week, somewhere near where I was at. But at this place, you know, we could do 10 tons a week, no problem. So we just partnership and said, let's, let's go at it. I can grow. You can sell. He was a a fruit and veg guy. So he was going to sell into the markets, all that. What we realized real quickly though, neither of us had sold mushrooms big in Australia. He was (laughs) was the apple and pear guy. I was a mushroom guy who was selling 30 kilos a week and they were selling like crazy. I was developing a little following, but, um, on the, on the, uh, desire to sell 10 tons a week. It was like, okay, go get, go get, go get, go find people who want mushrooms. And we grew one type. Uh, and that was a real issue in the States that would have worked here. I didn't realize how small the market was actually. And if you overflow it with one type of mushroom, then you're going to shoot yourself in the foot. So it, yeah, it just, it, we, bled, we bled money out of that for about six months before it was shut up shop and go figure out what you're going to do. Um, so I went to work and I mean, this, this, I don't, I don't even know how this happened, but this is like something magical for me is that I read on Craigslist, you know, several years ago that I'm going to go work on a mushroom farm as a spawn supervisor. And at that time, this was 2010 ish. Um, there was a whole bunch of ads on TV for seek.com. If, if that job exists, you'll find it on seek. So I was on seek and seek had a spawn supervisor position being advertised. And it's like, well, wow, you know, that's great. I applied for it and they, they saw my resume with spawn supervisor and all this stuff. And, and I got a call within like 15 seconds of putting in the resume. They're like, you're kidding. Wow. No, no one doesn't exist <laughs> that because there's only two spawn labs in Australia. No one here, there's no like talent pool to pick from, but they were looking to bring in like an asparagus grower or something like that. And like, and, and, and word them up, figure them out. So they were, I think they were offering like 60 or 65 K uh, a year to do that job. And that was fine for me. Cause I had to dig myself out of a hole. So I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll yeah. Take <laughs> I went for the interview and they offered me like 10 above, you know, what they were actually asking. Cause they were, th- they were thinking, you know, this guy doesn't exist here. He is. And he actually is not lying. This is a real resume. Yeah. I went to work for uh, Costa mushroom farm. So that's um, like the largest mushroom farm in the Southern hemisphere but they grow button mushrooms. So this is, this is a step away from what I was doing in California. In California, I was doing like exotics, uh, all on hardwood, like oyster, um, Namiko chestnut, like all these different interesting culinary exotic varieties. But here, like the main type of mushroom grown is agaricus. That's the white button mushroom or the pizza mushroom. And, you know, when they grow them out to big brown ones, big open ones, or small little button ones or, or little midway cup ones. They're all the same. That's all the same stuff. It's just grown to a different uh, degree or, you know, length of time. So it's, it was a step away from that, but in the spawn world, it's all the same. You're just developing the spawn or the seed for the mushrooms. So uh, I went to work for basically the largest spawn uh, producer in Australia um, in the Southern hemisphere. And that's a global company and all that stuff. So I just got yeah, it back in the mushroom game back in like the big sort of wheels turning and figuring out what's going on. So fell back in love and decided to, you know, go down that path again. So eventually after being, uh, after being recognized in that company with a lot of passion, they, they actually put me on the, uh, the packets of, of mushrooms in Woolworths. I was the grower. So I was on that meet the grower for a very short amount of time. They went out and printed like uh, 300,000 of those packets. And then I got a great, a great job offer to go on and do this thing. So I think I was there for all of a week or two, whenever they put me on the packets. 
and they had pre-printed all these things. And I was like, I got a better offer and I want to chase it down. But uh, they kept on using me until I was gone. So I was still working for them for a year. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I just went back. I went to work in the, in the Melbourne wholesale fruit and veg market for a mushroom salesman, for a wholesaler in mushrooms. And he was actually the guy who I was selling my 30 kilos of, uh, of mushroom a week to whenever I very first came here. And that, you know, coming full circle, he's like, okay, so you've seen it. You've grown your business huge. You've had major failures. You've seen the other side of it. You've seen the spawn. You've seen now all this. Come over here, be a salesman for me, um, figure out that portion of the market, and we'll go and we'll build a mushroom farm. So that was about six years ago. I got drawn into the market, and I don't know if you know how the, the, the fruit and veg wholesale markets work, but here they're like overnight. So you go to work at like 11 p.m., you're done at 7 a.m., and it's just that every day, and it's kind of a, a hard slag. But I was really, it was really, you know, good at it because I was passionate about the product. So, you know, a good salesman knows all that stuff about his things. Like I'm a terrible salesman. Couldn't sell you anything except mushrooms because I love them and I love everything about them. So, you know, he never wanted me to leave that position. He never wanted to see me go because his business did really great. You know, with that sort of salesman, with that sort of stuff, people could talk and learn. And it was like going, it, it was, a, it was a great environment. I, I love that job. I love doing that and, and, and being there in touch with all the customers. But it was again, removed from like where my real skill set was in producing and, and like developing and growing and being the artist and all that stuff. Like I'm, I'm literally just taking orders from a phone and putting on paper and then somebody else is picking the mushrooms. And then, then there's a whole bunch of other social aspect to it. So yeah, if, you're, if your passion's not in the admin side, then that's going to be hard to, uh, <laughs> to, to, to sort of stay there for too long. I'd imagine. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's the thing is I thought, you know, let's do this for six months or a year. Um, but I ended up doing it for five. Um, anyway, w there was no, there was no like, um, ill will or anything there. Like no, no, nothing sour. It's just, I, I was there and it just kept being good. It was great money and all that stuff. Um, until beginning of 2019, uh, one of the, one of my co-founders of Fable, um, at the time owned a mushroom farming company. Uh, and wanted to pull me in and sort of explore some of those extra skill sets, do the medicinal side, do the exotic mushroom side. And, you know, that was great. That, 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 that had me. So I went and started working for him in the, in the beginning of 2019. And by mid 2019, um, we realized that processing of the mushrooms into, um, like a mushroom based meat alternatives was kind of like a real way forward, like something new, something interesting, a really hot space. Um, and we have an ingredient that, that we know, like I know intimately and I'm a chef and I'm a scientist and like, this is a skill set that right now is the time to use. So we decided, yeah, okay, we'll take that to the side and go out and look at starting up this thing like mushroom based meat. So on the course of doing that, you know, uh, probing around the market and the investors and this and that, we actually got in, introduced to what is our third co-founder. So there's three co-founders of Fable. So there's Chris, the owner of the farming company. There was me, the mushroom technician. And then there was this other guy floating around out there with a product, but no uh, technical team. So he was a really great like brand builder and all this stuff. And he actually had a product that was about to be commercial, but he didn't have the, the tech team behind him or the, that skill set to sort of build it up and grow it and, and expand it out. And that's where the marriage came together. You know, we were pushed together by sort of investment bodies. Um, and 
we ended up saying, okay, we'll, we'll try this out. We actually avoided meeting each other for a while because we were going to be competitors in the space or whatever. Uh, but when we actually did meet up, it's like, let's put aside the day to do this thing. If it's no good, you know, after lunch or whatever, you know, we'll just say it was a great coffee and we'll talk to you later or whatever, you know, we'll see you in the space. Uh, but ended up spending the rest of the evening together. Um, and, and it was not a long courting process before we knew that, you know, this, this is something where we all have complementary skill sets. We all have a passion for doing something in this space. Um, let's, let's do it and let's do it. Not only do it, let's, let's, let's do it amazing. Let's do something great. You know, let's, um, let's make it happen. So we did. And by October we had founded Fable and ready to go feet on the ground running at it, we launched our product in December. So this is the internationally awarded Smoking Hot Confessions Barbecue Podcast with your host, Ben Arnott. How long has it been since your last confession? So you were saying, mate, that you that you launched it uh, very soon thereafter. Yeah. So launch of the product in December. So over the course of, of getting to this point, um, I actually got the opportunity to meet uh, one of the, the world's coolest chefs and not only the world's coolest chef, but one of my original inspirations. So I, I, you know, back to where I was a scientific chef back in San Antonio, Texas, I was a chemical engineering scientific chef with that approach. And in, like some of the people in the world at the time, or actually the person in the world at the time who was a major focus for me was Heston Blumenthal, a, a really scientific chef who takes like an image and turns it into something else. You know, he takes a, the, the look of a food and makes it taste like another food, or he just takes a concept and turns it into a dish. Um, you know, so that's, that's really interesting. And, and like, they call him like the molecular gastronomist or like, anyway, to me, he's a scientific chef and he was one of my first and major inspirations somehow in all of this, where I lost a job and needed a job and got a spawn supervisor position to open up. I, I went out in the world and this inspiration that I had from the very beginning somehow and just somehow along the way I ended up being able to be like his mushroom expert because he was looking for mushrooms. I went to Thailand to a, um, I met a guy at a, at a meeting, a, a Thai professor. Um, and he invited me over to Thailand to come check out his mushroom stuff, uh, you know, and, and I gave him a, a wonderful, amazing Australian native mushroom gift, all that kind of stuff. But along the course of this, you know, he showed me around his mushroom farms. He was then taking Heston because Heston had, had, uh, had, had seeked him out to go do the same thing that I essentially had just done. So I got the opportunity from the Thai professor. He, he knew how much I, I, you know, I, I idolized Heston. You know, I used those words. But, um, and I had just done what Heston was going to do. So he's like, yeah, go for it. You're, you're obviously very intimately understanding everything we're doing here. You are his guide. You go show him these farms, you be his expert. So I got that opportunity. And, uh, you know, um, it was like a three hour drive to the farm from where I met him. I actually met Heston at McDonald's. That's cool. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So it was a three hour drive. We were in the back of the car and just instantly friends instantly, like just in each other's world and nothing else existed. It was just amazing. Um, and I got to be that expert for him. I got to give him a gift and we just stayed in touch from there. He actually came over and visited whenever he was following the Grand Prix and I got to cook him my, you see, here, here is how much of a Texan I am. I wanted to cook for Heston and I wanted to show him my capabilities. And what did I cook for him? I cooked him brisket because there's nothing more like technically like 
difficult in my mind to get like perfect. There's, there's things that you can throw mixes at and do all kinds of stuff, but the simplicity of a perfectly cooked meat is so complex, you know, like it's hours and, and, and you measure it in half days, right? You know, <laughs> how many, how long you're going to be out there doing what you're doing. But that's what I wanted to cook him. And that's what I invited him out here for, you know, come try my brisket. I want you to, I want you to try. And at the same time, it just so happened that I was deep into developing the uh, mushroom-based meat. So there's another technically complex thing that I can show him. And I had no real like commercial interest in, in like bringing him in or sucking him in on the thing. But I was like, look, here, here's brisket. Love that. And here's a mushroom-based burger. Try that. And he loved both of them. It was enough, you know, it was, it was just like a, that sort of uplifting thing for you. There's some validation that, you know, your idol chef, he loves your food and he says he loves your food. You know, that's great. Yeah. Take that a few months later. And, and, and I called him up and I said, Hey, we're actually taking that, that mushroom based meat thing forward. Um, would you, you remember it at first, you know, first, but do you remember it? And he's like, Oh yeah, I remember it. And I was like, would you like to, to maybe do something along the side, you know, like maybe throw a couple of comments at it or even be involved in some way. And he's like, hundred percent. Yeah. Like, like that. So, so good. So I'm validated good. on this level where he, he could have just been appeasing me coming over and spending time in Australia, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I like your food. It's great. But I then said, you know, would you like to be involved? And he said, yeah, hundred percent. So that, you know, <laughs> speaks to that level. It, it is, it is what that is. So having that, Launching in December, we launched at Dinner by Heston, his restaurant in Melbourne. So it was that. So that's wow. like, yeah. So that that long backstory, just to, to say, in December, we, la- we launched the product here in, in Victoria at Dinner by Heston. Following up that launch in Sydney, uh, we did uh, at uh, the Continental Deli, and then we did one in uh, the Sunshine Coast we did at, uh, at a brewery, uh, the Glasshouse Brewery. And then we've since launched elsewhere. It's, it's in Heston's restaurants in the UK. Um, it's in Singapore. It's, uh, you know, it, I mean, it's not by no means is it like a massive global thing, but it's, it's in all these places. I think it's about 50, 50 restaurants, 50 venues here in Australia have it on their menu. Um, you know, it, recently with the, with the current situation, that's, that's gone kind of slow. But uh, we've also had the meal kit delivery company, um, Marley Spoon as our, you know, our very first nice big customer. And their, their sales right now are going really great. People aren't leaving. They're ordering meal kits for home. So, you know, those, those sales have gone really, really great. Um, and we've been told by Marley Spoon that it's not, not one of the best product launches, but the best product launch that they've ever had. Um, so. Wow. Another bit of validation there. Yeah, no doubt, man. That's absolutely awesome. That's fantastic stuff. Now you just mentioned there that you do, um, that you do uh, like barbecue. You you said you cooked a brisket for for Heston. There's not many people in the world that can say they cooked a brisket for Heston, and and you are uh, as you did say a a good old Texan boy. So mm-hmm. just to just to link it back to barbecue, just for a second, just to give you yeah. just to sort of ground your your barbecue roots for for my barbecue audience. Mm-hmm. Um, what is your favorite style of barbecue, and do you have a favorite barbecue joint? All right, yeah. So favorite style. Is Texas style. I mean, for me, like that's what I grew up with. That is my, that's my roots. And it's not because, you know, I pit them against each other and I think it's the most amazing just because, you know, that's where I'm from, but that's what I grew up with. That's what rings the bell inside of me is like 
um, it, it's very, it's all about low and slow cooking, cooking rough cuts of meat for a really long time and getting smoke in there for sure. I, I have my own rubs and my own choice of rub. Uh, don't brine. Um, and I make my own sauce. Um, all that stuff. I love that vinegary, watery, peppery, very, very spicy Texas style barbecue rather than the sweet lip smacky. Like I love that too. Yeah. <laughs> but, but my preference, if, if I'm going to go for one, it's going to be the, the Texan, Texan barbecue. And so do you have a, like an offset smoker or do you cook on some, like, like a, something different pellet or a bullet or? Yeah, no, I, I've got a uh, little offset smoker that I purchased at Walmart in the U.S. and I brought it back over here. It's perfect for just like a whole brisket. I mean, it's a little bit small for a whole brisket. You got to do a little bit more extra management around it, but it's good for the, the house, you know? And I think we spent maybe $45 on it and it's, it's, <laughs> wow. It, yeah, it's been amazing. But, you know, it's, it's not necessarily about, in my mind, it's not about the equipment. You could do it with a barrel and a hole in the ground and all that. Um, it's about the knowledge of, of making sure everything's working right. You know? and, and then you can get there. You can, our ancestors did this with mud. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So um, we've, we've kind of uh, established your, your barbecue roots there. Um, there's some big claims that are being made with uh, made about fable that, you know, it'll satisfy any, any meat loving person. Um, can you give us a bit of a rundown on, on how, on how fable is made? Because you, you sent yep. me a, a, a package of it. It just arrived yep. about 20 minutes before we started this episode. So I haven't had a yep. chance to actually taste it yet, but I did open it and I had a look at it and it does actually look like little chunks of shredded beef. Which yeah, I'm yeah. fascinated to know. How do you actually, like, how do you make it? How how does it yeah. come together? Yeah, fair enough. So, taste and texture for me is like foremost. Of course, there's the commercial side of it, and everybody, you know, taste and texture is one. Then there's cost, and and then there's like ethics and health and all that stuff. But for me, if I'm going to buy it as a meat eater who's going to reduce my meat consumption, it's going to be taste and texture, or I won't buy it again. So. That it's, that's number one, what it's about. And the particular mushroom that we have to use is because of its texture. So I can't just throw in a mixture of mushrooms. I can't just do anything in there. It has to be shiitake mushrooms. Shiitake mushrooms have that robust, fibrous nature that whenever you beat it up a little bit with, with the mixers and that, you can encourage it to sort of get that, that structure of well-cooked, slow and slow cooked meat. So what you got in that pack, that's what it is. It, it's, it's, it's replicating that low and slow cook. So it's, it's like having it all done and the flavor being there. So essentially with that, all, all you really got to do is to, to sear it, get some color on the outside of it in however you choose to do, like whatever oil. Um, and then I, I would suggest from that point, you just remove it out of the pan and then build a sauce around it, build whatever sauce you're going to build. So it works like for curries or or barbecue, you know, it's, 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 it's slow cooked meat and it's not overly powerfully flavored in any direction. It's, it's merely, it's the taste of slow cooked meat and the texture of slow cooked meat. So if you want to make it into a curry that tastes like you've cooked it for six hours or a bolognese, that's like you cooked it for four hours or a slow cook or barbecue or a lamb spit, you know, all that kind of stuff. It's more how you influence the stuff around it. it it's, it's by no means flavorless, but it's flavored neutral so that whenever you, I mean, you can eat it 
on its own. And it's just like eating roast, you know, like a roast that you haven't really done much to. But that's that with that in mind is like every, every culture has a slow cooked meat that's at its very core, every culture around the world. And we've thrown every culture's um, uh, methods at it. And in every method that we've thrown at it, it performs, you know, it performs well, you know, it's, that's, I feel, I feel great about this thing saying that it will please the meat eaters because it, it's going to be the people who are going to be trying, not necessarily are going to be the avid meat eaters who want to try plant-based that, you know, they're not going to, they're not just going to be like, okay, I'll try it to tell you it sucks. It's going to be the people who <laughs> are consciously making a decision to, you know, reduce their consumption of, of high resource input protein. That's, that's it. You know, I mean, it's, it's not about saying anything's bad or bad for you. Cause that's, that's not really my approach. My approach was to make it easier for people to make that choice to reduce the consumption of that higher input resource. You know, that's, that's it. And that's why, you know, back to, you know, my choices of becoming a vegan that happened here in Australia. That was three years ago. I was bashing the mushroom farm, bashing the life of, of mushrooms and fungi and what they do. And, and they, they're nature's recyclers. You know, whenever you grow fungi, you're growing them from a waste product. You're actually consuming for the, for the white button mushroom, you're consuming the straw from the wheat that you're using to make your pasta and your bread and your beer. Um, the, the straw is just used for bedding of horses or, you know, it's, there's no real nutritive value in there for humans or animals, but fungi are that middle step. They're the ones that can take that undigestible stuff, digest it, and in doing so, they create the enzymes that have the nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium that the plants need to then grow again. So if you just push your, your, your wheat back into the dirt, you're not going to be giving nutrition to your plants. You're going to be feeding bacteria, there, which will there'd eventually There'd be a certain amount of, of, of nitrogen released back into the soil though, which is, which is never a bad thing. Never a bad thing, but there is, it's, it's not an efficient thing. So if you're pushing it into the ground, you're not allowing it to, you're not allowing the bacteria to accumulate like you would in a compost pile and then turning and getting that efficient release of all of that stuff that you can then put back into the soil. Whenever you do it on that small level, it's, uh, it, you're not, you're not achieving the same things and you're not doing it efficiently at all. It's going to happen over the course of uh, months or years, whereas in a compost pile, it happens in the course of days or weeks. Yeah, fair and, enough. And in saying that, the, the, the slow release over time, uh, it's almost inconsequential whenever you have like the soil erosion and all that, you know, go on and on and on. Yeah. And on. But the thing is I was bashing about how mushrooms are grown from a waste product and they're nature's recyclers. And then it's hard to say that every day, but then go home and eat, you know, steak and steak and steak and meat and barbecue and, and sausages and all that every day. You know, it's like, well, okay, you can reduce your consumption. But I decided at that point, I'm going to try this thing because, you know, at that time there was like, all these Netflix videos, uh, you know, that, that make you feel bad for eating meat. <laughs> so all that, all that nasty propaganda, we call it here in this show. Yeah. And it, and I did, I did feel bad, you know, and, and, and I thought, okay, I'm gonna make a conscious decision to just cut it out. I don't want to reduce. I just want to cut it out and see what life is like. Um, and fortunately my best friend did it with me and we decided to do it for a month. Um, the problem there is a meat eater who stops eating meat feels awful whenever he stops eating meat. So it was like three weeks, like two weeks bad and a third week sort of terrible where I just felt awful. But I was like, I'm going to see this thing through for the month. You know, I've got to do it. I've got to do it for myself. 
uh, in the fourth week, I started feeling really good, you know, but it's like, I don't want a roller coaster. I don't want to do this and then stop doing it. And then at some point say, Hey, I did that. I'll do it again. So I said, you know, I'll take it from one month to three months. And I did it. And it was great. I was working in the fruit and veg wholesale market. I had fruit and veg packed and all that lovely, delicious bounties of vegetable meals. So I was doing fine. Then I took it from three months to six months and then decided at six months, Hey, I've done six months. I'm going to take it to a year and we'll just eat from there. But at month eight, I visited Texas. I went back home. <laughs> I didn't make it. I didn't make it the year. So I, I, I just said, I just decided, look, you know, who, who's telling you, you have to do this. It's just me. I'm going to, while I'm back home, eat my barbecue. I'm not, I'm not going to miss out on that. I'm not going to, but then go back to Australia. I'll finish out the year. And, and it's very clear. It's very clear now that I'm passionate and close to meat eating. So I decided a very conscious decision. I will continue eating meat. I will continue to put a lot of focus and passion into, into the, the food that I make, but I'm also going to do my best to provide a, uh, an avenue for people who want to reduce their meat consumption to do so in a way that's delicious and meaty, you know, that took to, to have that option. And it culminated to where we are now with Fable. That's the product. That's the meat chunks that you got. And, you know, when we talk about the recipe, I hope you prepare it barbecue style in a bun and yeah, give us some feedback. It, it works. Yeah, I, I will be for sure. And I'll, um, I'll be sure to take a bunch of photos and, uh, and, and share it with the listeners as well. And we'll see if we can't, uh, can't convince a few of them to, to, to give it a crack as well. I'm curious about what you said about, um, about how when a meat eater goes off meat, they don't feel very well. Cause I'm, I, um, I've always found like ever, ever since I was a kid, my, and my, my father will, will, will testify to this. If I don't eat meat like daily, mm. I, I really start to feel ill. And, mm. uh, I've, I have gone through some, uh, some different recipes, um, like a, like a black bean burger patty, for example, that I, that I yep. whip up and I put together. It's, it's, it's quite tasty, but it just doesn't quite have that, uh, that, that protein hit that, um, mm-hmm. that, that the meat really gives my body. So does the, does the shiitake mushroom, does it have like a, like a large amount of protein in it as well? Is it going to, is it going to satisfy that sort of that biochemical, um, need within our own bodies? Well, Mushrooms, as they are very meaty, it's meaty because of the, uh, the amino acids that are in there that are very, very similar to the meat amino acids. So amino acids are the building blocks of protein. So the building blocks of the protein are there. So that biochemical it is there. And yes, there is protein uh, in the form of, of a soy protein that we've added to this to sort of get it, one, texturally bound, and then two, have that, that, that bit of protein. So I I think we're at about 11 out of 100 grams of protein in there. So you'll, you'll feel, you'll, you definitely get it. And the thing is that the taste and the texture are there. So the, the, the psychology and the physiology follows right behind. That What I notice about this, uh, as opposed to other sort of plant-based meat alternatives, um, the other, I don't want to badmouth anyone because I think it's a great, it's a movement that, that needs to sort of happen, you know, for all kinds of reasons. Um, but unfortunately, like the mixtures and like the chemistry behind putting it all together and getting it right, there's a lot of binders in there. There's a lot of starches in there. And there's and actually, it, it's widespread that there's a lot of unnatural starches in there, like starches that have been modified a bit so that they actually act in a certain way. 
And I mean, that's, that's cool food chemistry, but you, you wouldn't eat it every day because it's like rocks in your stomach and it's not, you know, you mm. just don't feel good and all that kind of stuff. What I can say about this is that it's, it's uh, two thirds mushrooms and mushrooms, especially these high fiber, it, lots of movement and lots of very fresh and clean movement, great feeling in your guts, a great feeling of, of, you know, the, the next period of time after whenever you're cleaning yourself, all that kind of stuff, high fiber with a good protein hit, um, a good source of iron. Um, but, but for me, it's, it's all really about the flavor and you just get the added benefits of having the shiitake mushrooms, which are quite medicinal in their own right. Well, um, shiitake mushrooms are quite popular in, in the barbecue scene anyway. It gets, um, they often get dried and ground up and put into various different spice rubs and things anyway. Yeah. So Mommy. I think that um, people might not actually realize just how much shiitake they're, they're already intaking anyway. So this shouldn't, mm. be, too, shouldn't be too foreign a concept, really, um, mm. the idea of it. Um, so with, the, uh, with the, the fable then, we've, we've sort of talked a bit about um, – about people's health and and how it works biochemically, um, what are I guess what I'm asking is, um, what are the direct health benefits of maybe switching out two or three meat meals a week to a fable or mushroom based uh, substitute? Yeah, well, look, I can't I can't speak to to that specifically. Um, just because, you know, I, I'm not an accredited dietitian or anything. Um, what I can say that the benefits that shiitake has been noted for, you know, some research has been behind shiitake is that, um, it's, it actively, well, it's known to actively lower cholesterol. So it's actually quite good at cleaning the, the vasculature. It's really good for your cardiovascular system. So like reducing the plaques and that hardened arteries, it actually softens them up a bit. Um, there are some really unique and good polysaccharides that are in there. So polysaccharides are in the carbohydrate family. They're like big, big, long starches. And some of them are actually quite functional in your body. You might've heard of like the glucans, the beta glucans, uh, specifically in, in shiitake, there's one called lentinin. And that's, that's the one that's known to do this sort of, uh, cleaning up your vasculature and actually have, um, antiviral activity in that it, uh, it's sort of, uh, demonstrated to increase your interferon production, which is your own body's like, uh, natural antiviral and immunity defense. So your natural killer cells are boosted. So antiviral is actually quite a, an interesting thing at this time, whenever we're all worried about this virus. So it's, it's got these properties that are known, um, and, and shown in, in, you know, peer reviewed research to, uh, actually increase your own body's immunity levels to, to sort of fight off these sorts of things. And then also with the other sort of like plethora of unique polysaccharides, there's like a, a alpha glucan rich stuff called um, uh, active hexose correlated compound. That's, uh, you know, it, it's, it's just more of these very functional polysaccharide family, um, very unique to specifically shiitake mushrooms, but other mushrooms have their own. Um, this one's just, it's got lots of research done on it. And, you know, it's been used uh, not only for food, but for medicine for a very long time overseas. So, you know, the Chinese, traditional Chinese medicine has like a 5,000 written year history of utilizing this and other things for, you know, functional use. So they're in there. That, that stuff is in there, whether it's anecdotal or not. I'm no doctor and I'm not telling you that that's the case. What I'm telling you is definitely you, you don't have 
the glut of, of congestion in your body. So if you do not consume much fiber in your diet, you don't have a lot of ability to move whatever's along in your stomach, period. Having the ability to move whatever's along in your digestive tract is very freeing and you, you've got light sort of, you just feel good. You know, it's not, not necessarily a boost of energy, but you do, you know, you're, you're, you're experiencing whatever your natural killer cells moving up and you're, you're antiviral and it's known to like the halt, the growth of tumors, if they're in there, all that kind of stuff, but you get a fiber hit <laughs> and that fiber passes along, you know, it absorbs the water and moves everything along. Feels real good. Sounds fantastic. Yeah. So about, um, about 10 years ago, I did a, a master's of environmental management degree, which is, I understand is, you know, not, not anywhere near approaching the, the level of research that, that uh, you've done into it. But one of the things that we studied was the impact that the beef industry has on the world. And it's, it's, quite, it's quite severe, the impact that it does have, um, especially considering that beef is the meat that everyone wants to eat. So it, it is having these environmental impacts um, all around the world. Things like, you know, everything from the forest clearing for the, for, for the pastures to the methane that the cows produce each day each. And it, for, from what you've been telling me, it sounds a lot like the mushroom industry gives back to the environment, whereas, say, the beef industry takes from the environment. Is that, is that a fair estimation? Absolutely. So, I mean, um, not, to, not to necessarily rip on the, the beef too much because I do love it and everyone else does too. Oh, me too, me too. <laughs> but... So to, to, to talk specifically about the mushrooms is yes, they are nature's recyclers. Um, it's not just they're recycling on a farm because, you know, agriculturalists are, are being cheap and, and dirty. You know, that's what happens in the forest. If mushrooms weren't doing their job, you wouldn't, you wouldn't go and be able to walk in a forest because it'd be just all the dead trees of the years just piled up, you know, into a mass. So what happens is they fall down, the mushrooms actually digest that, it goes back into the soil. And that's just the circle of life. And to some degree, you know, the ruminants have been around as long as we have and, and long before us, they, they have their use in agricultural systems as well. So it's just the overuse in agricultural, you know, factory sort of farming style. That, I think that's where it's like resource depletive and where mushrooms, no matter at what level you go, you can almost basically be just recycling your resources. You know, you're pumping out, even the mushroom waste product is something that people want. You know, if you've ever put down topsoil in your yard, you go and you get the five-way mix or you get the mushroom mix because it's got that good stuff in there. And at every mushroom farm, you know, that's their waste. They sell it off to the, the soil companies. Um, yeah, so that's what it is. It's nature's recycler. Got a project you'd like to work on with the SHC team? Shoot Ben an email on ben at smokinghotconfessions.com and let's have a conversation. Well, mate, I've got to say, I'm, I think I'm sold on Fable and I've, I've got that, uh, that, that packet in the fridge there and I'm looking forward to giving that a go. So can you tell us what would be your favorite recipe for cooking Fable that, that all the listeners should, uh, should, should have a crack at? Yeah, for sure. Well, look, there's a lot of favorites, but one that your listeners should do is definitely one of my top favorites and that's to have it as a barbecue brisket sandwich. Um, so essentially like a burger, um, you'll, you'll, you'll just basically, you'll need the burger set up as in a couple of buns. You'll toast those on the, on the inside only. So you get that nice soft bun outside and then a coleslaw, um, cheese. If you like it, you don't have to have it, but cheese, if you like it. And then the fable with in, in, in my favorite style, it takes two sauces, but it's perfectly fine to have only one. Um, so the method to do that would be 
Put the fable in a hot skillet or flat grill with a bit of oil and get the color on it. So get the color on the outside, flip it over once or toss it around in the pan. And really we're talking just a couple of minutes on a medium sort of high heat. Once that caramelization is done, then I hit it in um, a sauce that I have here is A1 sauce. And the, the, the sort of close replicant of that here, I think is called HP. Yep. So yep. you hit it with that and it's got a bit of a, a high sort of carbohydrate and real twang to it. So that just sort of puts a coating on the fable and it gives it that first level of smoky barbecueness and kind of a touch of caramelization. So that's where it's kind of replicating what would happen in the smoker. And then you hit it with your sauce, whatever your sauce is. If it's that Texas barbecue sauce, the vinegary, peppery, sort of runny, liquidy one, then I would say what you're doing with your coleslaw is making that creamy, normal style coleslaw where you can go buy a bottle of it, squirt it on, throw it in. But if you're doing sort of a Kansas City style, sticky, sweet, then what I would say is you make your slaw a bit more tangy, a little bit more vinegary and peppery. And that way you're, you're grinning the balance. So, you know, it's not yeah, just yeah. sweet, 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 sweet. Um, but yeah, that is, I mean, it's as simple as that. I've done live videos on Facebook where it took me about five to seven minutes to put that together while I'm talking and having a... Oh, wow. Same time, you know, it's like the fable is done. You know, you don't have to spend that day making it. It's done. You just got to finish it however your sauce is or, you know, whatever your preparation is. And like I said, curries and stews, it works. It's bolognese, it works. So, you know, I, I definitely say those are all things you should try. But your listeners and you, definitely your favorite cue, your favorite sauce, and put it on some brioche buns, a little bit of slaw, cheese if you like, and go and love it. Um, yeah, my favorite is that Texas style. Really, really spicy, very peppery stuff. Beautiful. So do I need to worry about doing things like trying to compress it into a patty or do I put it on like, like pulled pork, just grab some tongs and no, drop it on? Yeah. So the, the couple of variants that I've, that I've offered to people on this is that, yeah, you can go the pulled pork style. And typically whenever I say pulled pork, that's the one where you go with the Kansas city sweet style, smacky lippy one. You put it in the pan, you do your sauces and then you shred it up and get the sauce mixed in. But if you're going brisket style, Put it in the pan, get your sauce on it, and then serve whole nuggets. Don't press them. Don't do nothing like that. Get them in, and you, you press them with your, with your teeth, and you get the bite. And, yeah, it's just like let it do its succulent thing. Yeah. Mate, that sounds absolutely delicious. I'm really looking forward to uh, to getting in and, uh, and and having a crack at that. So, listen, um, I, I think that's probably a good point to uh, to sort of start to start rounding this out. So um, I, I'm going to turn the studio over to you now. So give some uh, give some shout outs, give some thanks to whomever you would like to and tell everybody where they can track Fable down on the interwebs. All right. Well, first, I want to say thanks to you, Ben. Uh, this is my very first confession. And I love that it was smoking hot. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, to my co-founders and that, like that's been, it's been an amazing ride and it's just, it's going now. So look out for us uh, at Instagram at Fable Food Co. Uh, same on Facebook. And then our website is fablefood.co. Check us out, join the mailing list. You'll get the updates. We're doing pop-ups like in, in, on e-commerce in, on e-commerce in, in geographical areas all the time. There's currently one going on right now as this is being recorded in, uh, in the sunny coast. And just last week there was one in Melbourne and we'll probably do that a couple more times before it's in retail. 
and it, and it's probably going to hit retail Woolies in, I don't know, in a couple of months. Yeah. Uh, you can order it through Marley Spoon though in the meal kit delivery. It is the mushroom meat. So that's the way to get a hold of it right now. Beautiful, mate. Well, thanks very much for your time and thank you for, for coming on board the show. Hey, thanks for having me, Ben. It's been great. Well, there you have it, family. That was Jim Fuller from Fable. What a fascinating story. Um, I got to tell you, I, I was skeptical when he first approached me to, uh, to, to talk about it, but it sounds absolutely great. And as I said, I've seen the package. It looks like the real deal. They do actually look like little bite-sized pieces of, of beef. So I'm really looking forward to getting into that. Uh, I'm probably going to go hit the grocery store tomorrow for the essentials that I'm going to need for that meal. And, uh, I'll, I'll cook it up tomorrow night. So keep an eye on the, uh, on the social media for that. Cause I'll be putting some, uh, some photos out and I'll probably do a, uh, I'll, I'll take a little bit of time. I'll cook it in a couple of different ways and I'll do up a, um, a, a full written review of it on the website there. So you'll be able to go check that out as well. Um, so once again, thanks to, uh, thanks to Jim for coming on board the show and, and sharing all that information with us. And so I'm going to just leave you with one last thought. If you would like to have some of the, uh, world's best barbecue t-shirt. And I say that with, uh, with a bit of tongue in cheek there, but it, it was recently awarded. You can see, uh, just over my shoulder, that shoulder, the Hail Mary. She's now available on t-shirts and you can grab one of them at our Smoking Hot Confessions merch shop, smokinghotconfessions.com slash shop. So jump in there, check them out. And until next time, take care of each other and keep on queuing. Thanks for listening to the Smoking Hot Confessions podcast. Head on over to smokinghotconfessions.com for recipes, tips, and Ben's own confessions.